looking forward to measuring use of force on a continuum from something as small as yelling to the actual use of a deadly weapon. So if there's a confrontation between a police yeah. officer and a citizen and it involves yelling, right. that data somehow enters the system. Absolutely. You know, it goes to what the relationship is between police departments and the community. It's What's the Point from 538. My name is Jody Avergan. This week, a special episode marking one year since the shooting of Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri. A year of protest, unrest, and soul-searching about police violence and race relations in America. It's also been a year of data gathering. Over the last 12 months, we've started to learn what we don't know about police violence. Some of the most basic statistics are still a mystery. So here are two conversations with two people trying to uncover that data. In a bit, we'll hear from Samuel Singyangwe, an activist who started the website MappingPoliceViolence.org. But first, here in the studio is Donovan X. Ramsey. He's a journalist and fellow at the progressive think tank Demos. He recently wrote a piece for 538 that gives an overview of who is keeping data on police violence, who is not, and the efforts to improve that. Donovan X. Ramsey, welcome to 538. Thank you. Good to be here. Whose responsibility is it to track police violence? So uh, according to law, <laughs> it's the uh, Department of uh, Justice's responsibility. The uh, 1994 Crime Act uh, more or less mandates that the DOJ both um, uh, collect data on and also report to the public on uh, police use of force specifically. Uh, which is what most people are pretty much interested in when they talk about tracking police behavior. Um, and I believe uh, since that law was passed in 94, they've issued about two or three official reports through the DOJ. The law says they're required to publish an annual summary of the data. Yes. So are they are they lapsing on that? Yes. Yes. They, you know, are not um, keeping up to the letter of the law. And uh, a big uh, problem uh, with, with doing that is that the responsibility to actually publish that data is on the DOJ. But the onus uh, for collecting the data, you know, falls on the local uh, levels of government all the way down to individual uh, police agencies. So one of the things the piece you wrote for 538 does, and this is something I think that happens a lot in data journalism, is it highlights the data we do have, but it also highlights the gaps in the data. And the story is maybe, in this case, more in the gaps than it is in the data itself. So were you surprised at the number of gaps? You know, funny enough, I wasn't. So going into this story, um, sort of like a bit of backstory, back in, to, in 2013, um, I was doing a story about the police killing of Miriam Carey. Miriam Carey, yes. So Miriam Carey was the woman that was actually shot in front of the White House. Um, she had a history, I think, of some mental illness, um, toddler in the car with her. And there were a lot of questionable things about that shooting. Um, you know, first you have a uh, woman who was not armed uh, in a vehicle. Um, there are also policies against firing um, uh, at a person when there is a, a minor around. So there was a toddler in the car. And, um, of course, as journalists, we always, you know, sort of going into these questions, say, OK, well, here's this one scenario. How do I put it into context? How many people have been killed by police this year? Uh, how many African-Americans have been killed by police this year? Of course. I mean, you like Googled. And yeah, right. So, there, right? <laughs> so you Google and you think, OK, well, I can't find it here. I'm like, I, I, this will be on the first page. Yeah. Of results, I'm sure. Right? And if and not, then, then I'll call somebody. Right. So then, I'm, you know, I'm calling around and um, and I didn't have that data. Um you mentioned the 
path the information takes up to the DOJ, which is responsible for collecting it and releasing it each year. And that happens at the local level. Mm -hmm. So in theory, I'm assuming that when there's an incident, someone gets shot by police, some paperwork gets filled out. Yeah. So what's supposed to happen? So what's supposed to happen is that um, uh, local police departments, you know, are supposed to actually record use of force um, and, and anything beyond use of force. I think anytime, you know, a weapon is discharged, um, you have, you know, arrest records, things like that. So there should be this data trail that exists. Uh, but what's not happening is that there has to be this handoff point between the local agencies, about 18,000 or so um, local uh, police agencies around the country and the Department of Justice. And it's just not a coordinated effort. And there's also an issue with, uh, there is no standard for actually collecting this data. Right, so, so even if the data moves up the chain, some department may be coding it in some way and some department and merging those databases is probably a real challenge. Yeah, so, you know... And there's um, nothing on the books that says everything needs to be coded in some no, standardized way. No, right, because we have this separation, you know, between our local uh, uh, governments and our federal government. So uh, a big push of what you see sort of right now happening that I sort of wrote about a bit in the piece is the White House is trying to move um, uh, local agencies sort of very smoothly into uh, one more or less standardized system of police data collection. Uh, there is this um, uh, police data initiative that the White House has launched uh, about a uh, year ago, and they're uh, partnering with organizations like Code for America to actually create free open software for police departments to use. But if you're saying there's this justice database and then there's the Justice Department, which is also enacting some laws, and then there's the BJS, Bureau of Justice Statistics, are they under the Justice yes. Department? Yeah. Right. But do you worry that there's going to be now a splintering of efforts and some departments are going to be using one database and some departments are going to be using another? Um, no. I mean, I think because so, you know, what I, when I think about uh, policing data, I uh, often try to uh, uh, contextualize it with thinking about, let's say, our, our education system. Our our, um, our our healthcare system that those are working. So <laughs> but but there are tons of efforts and we learn different yeah. things. Right. So like I can look at the World Health Organization and they have, you know, lots of really interesting data about health stats in America. But there's also the Department of Health and Human Services um, and that you can get at different things. Right. Uh, so I think that there kind of has to be more than one uh, effort. That, that it's willful negligence on the part of local departments to not report on incidents that may make them look bad? Or is it just that no one sat down and coordinated? Yeah, you know, I mean, I think that um, I've interviewed lots of cops over the past year and, you know, a few police chiefs. And it seems to me that there is this desire to have transparency. And there's also a uh, very real desire to, to learn more about what they're doing, you know, to, to, to have those stats there and say, you know, oh, wow, like I can see that these factors go into a um, into a stop that may not, you know, in well for people. And I think that now what you see is that it's becoming a federal priority and that hopefully that um, energy and that political will can push down to, you know, getting funding for agencies like the Bureau of Justice Statistics, um, getting funding for local police departments through grants to actually say, hey, here's some money to devote to having, you know, maybe a guy in the office who once a week goes and, you know, puts these numbers in. Um, 
And of course, there are probably some agencies that also, you know, don't want to look bad, you know, know that uh, reporting certain things will uh, show that they have some problems. So it's a bit of both. But I think that for the most part, you know, that uh, people just aren't prepared and don't have the resources. And I'll say that one of the themes that's emerging as I do this podcast is like people don't like paperwork, you know, and data entry is that it's it's to some extent it's busy work. So whether you're talking about doctors or astronomers or whoever. And and another point, too, is that, you know, you have to also think I think around the idea of police data collection. It's that um, officers have a uh, set of things that they want to know about any given police interaction. And then, of course, the public you know, has a set of things that we want to know about an interaction. So, you know, a cop is thinking about, you know, where did this happen? Um, you know, who was involved? Does does this person have, you know, priors, uh, things like that, because they're in the business of stopping crime and they want to uh, uh, work in that effort. But the public is interested in tying together um, incidents that really, you know, do do represent trends in saying, you know, what does this say about the way that we police, you know, nationally? One of those things that ties it together is, is demographic information. Yeah. So are the efforts that are going on right now to standardize, do they require that you enter demographic information about the victim and and or the cop? Yeah. So that's something that the uh, Bureau of Justice Stats is working on right now. So, you know, they've gotten you know a lot of political will and a huge push from the president and the attorney general to really revamp, you know, their system. And they're yeah going to include uh, demographic information uh, uh, into the way that they measure police interactions. But what I think is also so great is they're looking forward to uh, measuring uh, use of force on a continuum from something as small as yelling to the actual use of a deadly weapon. And, and this is for any sort of uh, police interaction and not just, you know, a, a, a death in custody. So if there's a confrontation between a police officer and a citizen and it involves yelling, right. that gets coded, that, that data yeah. somehow enters the system. Absolutely. And it's because I think the uh, reasoning behind it is that, you know, it goes to what the relationship is between police departments and the community. If we narrow our focus just on uh, use of a deadly weapon by a police officer, even something like a taser, then there are tons of interactions that that often end um, uh, deadly for people. Uh, I mean, you can take the case of Sandra Bland, for example, right? So if we're just looking at the uh, use of deadly force, the use of something like a taser, and she was, you know, threatened with a taser but never actually tased, then then we don't capture. But just uh, think about abuse. the challenge of trying to code an interaction like that. There's the stop. There's the argument. There's the threat. There's the arrest. Yeah. There's the jailing. There's the suicide. There's the history potentially of yeah. of mental illness. To try and put that in a database that's standardized yeah. seems like an almost impossible task. It's a huge undertaking. I mean, I think that um, that that we're at the point now where uh, we have to make some decisions about what we want to know about our police. Um, that's what the legislation is, sort of trying to get this very narrow set of you know um, um, data that that we can solve some problems with and answer some questions with. But I think that, you know, there are tons of constituencies that want a lot of different questions answered. And thank goodness there are many efforts. But I feel like this brings up a, a, a paradox with regards to how we think of policing, because my sense is that the same people who want to track police and gather data and say 
We want to know every time there's a there's a, a confrontation, not just a shooting, and we want information on someone you know being yelled at or someone being threatened. Those are in many ways the same people who are also saying policing needs to have more humanity. Policing needs to – community policing needs to come back. We need to return to a time when officers know their beat, officers are part of the community, and there's a real humanity divide that leads to a lot of these instances. So if you're telling a cop – we need you to code everything. Everything you do in your community is going to become a data point. But then at the same time, we need you to be real. We need you to connect. We need you yeah. to know people's names. How do you square that? Yeah, yeah that's, a, <laughs> that's a great question. Uh, I think that ultimately we have to rethink what policing is um, in our country. I mean, you have, um, I would say in almost every industry, sort of a, a, a push towards data and analytics to be more efficient and to sort of know more about what we're doing. And I think it's possible. I mean, I think that like you can have beat cops that are actually out um, uh, patrolling and doing a good job of, uh, of of keeping the peace, of being peace officers. But I think that, um, that it wouldn't hurt to have people within police departments that are tasked with um, oversight over the work and actually, you know, using data in a smart, efficient way to say, here's something that we know, you know, numbers wise in a in a quantitative way about the qualitative work that we're doing. Donovan X. Ramsey is a fellow at the progressive think tank Demos. You can read the piece he wrote about the varying efforts to gather data. Find a link at 538.com slash podcasts. As he mentioned, demographic information is particularly hard to come by when it comes to victims of police violence. And race is, of course, such a key part of this story. Samuel Singyangwei is a data scientist and policy analyst in the Bay Area, and he's one of the activists behind the site MappingPoliceViolence.org. There are these government efforts to change laws and gather better data, but in the meantime, there are the more crowdsourced efforts like Samuel's. He begins by merging existing databases and then tries to fill in the gaps. That usually starts with a search of local media reports that come out after someone's been shot. But that's often not enough either, and he needs to keep digging. Oftentimes the media would not report the race uh, of the victim, although sometimes they would have uh, a short you know, local news clip that would show the neighborhood and some of the, they would interview the family. And so you could um, approximate based on that. But the most... Um, the primary source that we really used to fill in the gaps around race were basically searching the person online, uh, the name of the person, seeing if they had a Facebook profile um, that had obviously their name and the same uh, city or location. Um, and when you look at their profile and their timeline, um, you can actually see it cut off at the time that uh, they were killed by police. And oftentimes there will be um, friends and family commenting and leaving um you know, notes about that person. Uh, another source was obituaries, um, where you can see, you know, the person died on this date, they have the same name in the same city. Um, and then through that process, usually there'll be a picture of them um, or extra clues in terms of who the person's family, uh, immediate family was that we could then use a follow-up search um, to help approximate the race. And so those are two of the main ways of um, coding for race among those records. The last one, which was the third method, was by looking at criminal records databases. So um, many of these folks had a previous criminal record, and in these databases, 
uh, you could see either a mugshot or uh, both a mugshot and actually uh, racial identification uh, of that person. Having to go to all of those Facebook pages and see them cut off at a certain date or read the obituaries must have just been heartbreaking work. It was extremely heavy, um, extremely heavy work, uh, but it was necessary uh, in order to really pull out and be able to identify uh, what's been going on in terms of race and police violence in this country. When you go to your website, mappingpoliceviolence.org, you see some of those trends presented. That is that is the goal of this project to, to some extent is to make a, a rhetorical point and to present these trends. Want to talk about some of the trends that emerged and some of the mapping that you're doing? First of all, you know, the scale of uh, police killings is on a level that you know, before August 9th, we really didn't know about. Uh, so, for example, we know that about three people are killed by police every day. Uh, and uh, one black person is killed by police almost every day. So every it, it ranges between every 27 hours and every 29 hours, depending on the year. Um, I think another big crucial piece to this is the fact that police killings have been fairly constant um, over time, at least going back to 2013, which is as far as our data goes back. There are about 1,140 people killed by police in 2013, about 1,170 people killed in 2014. Uh, and so far this year, it's really on track to be a comparable uh, number of current trends continue. Um, so that's another thing to think about, the fact that this has been going on for a long time. What is new is that people are starting to pay attention. The videos are starting to shed light uh, on the context in which this occurs and the circumstances in which this occurs. Uh, so those are two key findings from a high level. I think, you know, digging deeper and trying to examine these things by race, you really find that, you know, black folks are times more likely to be killed by police. They're more likely to be unarmed um, when they're killed by police. I wonder, from a presentation standpoint, how you square the tension between trying to offer higher level statistics and trends, but also tell an individual's story and honor an individual who had their life uh, taken from them. So it, it really is both, right? We want to tell the truth. Um, in different ways to appeal to different audiences. And I think some people are going to um, particularly resonate with the stories and from an emotional level of what's happening to these individuals. And other people are going to look to statistics uh, and trends uh, to give them a sense of what's going on. And so we really want to do both. And so what we do is um, we highlighted the stories of over 100 unarmed black people killed by police last year. Uh, and these really, you know, going to, you know, have the picture of the person, a long description of what happened, um, their name, you know, many of them leave behind, you know, children or uh, loved ones. And so we mentioned that as well. And so I think, you know, we want to make sure that we're respectful of the, of the fact that this is, these are not just numbers. Each number uh, reflects a human being, a life that was lost. Uh, and they have families and they have communities that they are supporting, that they were supporting that they were a part of. And so, you know, police violence is much broader than just the individual who was killed. Uh, it is the trauma that that causes uh, for everybody who was watching, whether in person or on video, uh, for the community um, and indeed for the country. Have you encountered resistance to these stats? Are there people out there who dispute them? Actually, no, we haven't. Um, I think people are receptive to this information. I think they get it now. We've seen it be reinforced by other um, databases using similar methods and similar data sources. So we've seen it from, you know, the, uh, the Guardian's database. We've seen it from the Washington Post database. They're all saying the same thing. 
and they're finding that, um, you know, that black folks are more likely to be killed by police and that police killings are happening at a scale at which um, the federal government certainly wasn't telling. Is the Ferguson Police Department one that was keeping good data? Absolutely not. So if the Michael Brown killing had not gotten the attention it got in the first six to 12 hours, what would have happened to to that story? It would have been another one of the um, over 1,000 stories uh, of police killings every year that does not get uh, major national media coverage. So, um, you know, what was particularly alarming and shocking looking through all of these stories and these examples um, was that, you know, really there only have been a handful of these that have reached a level of national media attention that folks really remember their names and have seen the video uh, or know about what happened. Um, but there are thousands um, in this database that folks don't know. And a lot of those stories are similar as well. And by pulling out those similarities, we can start to learn and examine um, some of the trends in terms of how people are being victimized by police, uh, trends in terms of where this is happening um, and what needs to change. This was a project, even though it's a data project, it was a project really born of protest, right? So this really started um, with a series of questions that we couldn't find the answers to. Um, questions that were so essential to activism, to uh, making the case for uh, systemic change. And those questions were, you know, how prevalent are police killings in America? Um, where are the places where there are hotspots of police violence? And where are the places that may be models in terms of um, being, police being able to do their job without killing people um, and that we can learn from, we can learn sort of what's working. Uh, and then the other piece is around, you know, what, how does being black in America impact your chances of being killed by police, um, which has been so central to the protest movement. Uh, and so, you know, we couldn't answer those questions without using the data. And so we had to collect it and analyze it ourselves. And I think the last point is around accountability. Uh, now that we have the data, it really is now possible to hold policymakers and police chiefs accountable to actually reducing and ultimately uh, eliminating um, the number of police killings that are happening. You, you mentioned the national movement. You mentioned trying to insert this into the conversation. So that gives us a chance to move to the next stat that you presented, which is 32 million more people dissatisfied with racism in America. Where does that number come from? So this number comes from, I got it off a recent Reuters article, which looked at a Gallup survey, uh, which asked the question, are you satisfied with the way blacks are treated in U.S. society? And they asked this question a couple of years ago, and then they asked the question again uh, in July, and they found 13% fewer people were satisfied, 13% uh, fewer American adults. And so that basically is a calculation looking at the population of U.S. adults, uh, and then 32 million is 13% uh, of that. And so that is the change that we've seen, really, um, in large part as a result of the movement and as a result of these issues being put uh, into the center of political and national discussion. I don't know exactly the, the right way to phrase this question, but does that count as a win for this movement? I think a win, it's hard to define um, if that counts as a win. I think ultimately the win is, you know, for police to stop killing us. But I think that counts as progress. It, it shows that uh, protests are effective at really changing public opinion, at making 
uh, a large sets of society uh, aware and conscious of what's happening. Uh, and that is the first step to putting pressure on elected officials, putting pressure on the media and putting pressure on other institutions to really respond to those opinions. One interesting thing in the Michael Brown case was that the Justice Department report cleared Officer Wilson of violating Brown's civil rights and concluded that his force was defensible. But then they also went out of their way to issue another report about the broader behavior of the police and the courts in Ferguson and pointing out that black residents are targeted and disproportionately arrested and fined. And that just struck me as a as a really interesting tension between an individual case, but then they took it upon themselves to point out larger data and patterns to tell another story that was just as damning. Absolutely. I think, you know, a little bit of history around um, why they weren't able to successfully uh, charge Darren Wilson with a crime, civil rights violation in that case, really has to do with the way that uh, that law is structured right now. So they would have had to prove that Officer Wilson willfully deprived Michael Brown of his civil rights. And to prove intent is almost impossible unless he, you know, says the N-word or something crazy right before he does it on video. Um, And so that is the constraint legally right now. What we really need is to change that uh, burden of proof. We need to lower the standard of proof um, so that we can show that, you know, we don't have to necessarily prove that this was willful um, because Michael Brown's civil rights were still deprived. And it was only until um, last century, so that they actually passed that law initially um, during Reconstruction uh, around allowing a prosecution for civil rights violations. Um, but it wasn't until uh, last century when they actually um, imposed that willful standard um, and raised the burden of proof, which made it more difficult for um, you know the federal government to prosecute people. And so I think we need to lower that standard again um, and go back to the progress that we had made in the 1870s um, to be able to make sure that the federal government has the tools it needs to successfully prosecute uh, individual officers. And you talk about not having a particular moment where someone like Darren Wilson uses an epithet or just displays over the top racism. And that happens all the time in these incidences where individual actors in an incident can exculpate themselves and say, I'm not a racist. The friends can say, I've never heard him utter a racist word, but it's not, but it's about the, the context and the system in which these individual actors are, are behaving. And does data help us understand that larger context? Absolutely. And I think this is an area where um, we're currently doing a lot of research and I think more research needs to be done uh, to really understand the connection between the data on police violence and the policies and practices of those police departments so that we can understand sort of what works and what doesn't work. You know, we've seen a lot of recommendations in terms of policy from the President's 21st Century Task Force report from other organizations as well. But what we haven't seen is a really data-informed analysis of which policies are most effective at reducing police violence, at holding officers accountable. Uh, What we do know, actually, is that all four of the cases where an officer has been charged with a crime um, for uh, police killing uh, recently, going all the way back to the beginning of the year, uh, has been a case where there was video evidence of the the interaction. And so uh, that is is one example where, you know, clearly body cameras 
um, in strengthening the right of citizens to record police uh, can actually make a difference. 24 states have passed police reforms, and you've done it a few times in this interview, and you mentioned that this is a movement born both of trying to highlight injustice and express frustration, but also highlight opportunities for for, for reform and best practices and show how we can move forward. So 24 states have passed police reform. What does that look like? So, I mean, it's powerful. Um, a number of states, 16, have passed uh, body cameras, so either increasing funding for them or, or also imposing um, regulations around how they should be used, uh, which is huge. We've also seen a number of reforms that go beyond body cameras because we know body cameras alone won't solve this problem. Uh, we've seen increases in officer training. Uh, we've seen establishment of databases of officer misconduct in places like uh, Colorado. Uh, we've seen strengthening the right of citizens to record the police uh, such that they can't confiscate your phone without a warrant uh, or your consent uh, and that you can sue them if they do. And so that's really powerful as well. We've also seen uh, stricter use of force standards in places uh, like Cleveland, for example, which just had a Department of Justice investigation. Uh, so we've seen a number of things. We've actually seen three, three states propose comprehensive packages of legislation that address all of those things uh, and more, right, that establish special prosecutors, independent investigations, uh, and more. And those states are Connecticut, Colorado, and Illinois. Is there one force or one jurisdiction that you can point to and say this is an effective model? So I think overall there is not a police department, that, at least that we've found, that incorporates all of, you know, the recommendations from the president's task force report or from um, sort of the policy advocacy community in general, what we'd like to see. But there are examples in terms of being open with data. You know, you know New York Police Department um, makes available data on all stops and frisks um, that the ACLU has used very powerfully to actually hold them accountable and actually change that policy. We've seen, um, you know, the police department in Dallas, um, Dallas Police Department actually recently, in response to the protest and the demand for accountability, has posted all officer-involved shootings uh, online, uh, and it's really in real time. So a couple of days after it happens, you can see, you know, each case of an officer-involved shooting and the information about what happened. I think those are good examples, um, but again, I think policy isn't a policy alone isn't going to get us to a place where we're ending police killing. Uh, that policy has to be enforced, and the culture of police departments have to be embedded with that, that, those accountability measures. Have you heard from police officers in response to your project? Uh, not so much. I think, you know, the next phase of this really is to put this data in front of them uh, and hold them accountable. I think right now, you know, our primary audience really is, uh, you know, folks who are activists, folks who are trying to change um, policies and practices through advocacy. Um, but I think there are folks in police departments that may be allies in this work, that may actually feel like change needs to happen and need a language and need the data to show why. And I think you know we need to be engaging them as well. How do you imagine an average cop, if there is such a thing in Cleveland or, or New York or Orlando, would react to visiting your website? I think, you know, I think they would feel like they are um, being grouped in a category with uh, what they call bad apple police officers, 
And I think this really isn't about individual officers. This is about the systems in place uh, that allow police violence to take place and allow it to happen with impunity. And I think that it's important to distinguish that from the individuals operating in those systems uh, because, you know, they're being trained to shoot to kill in most cases. You know, they're being... Uh, they aren't being tested for implicit racial bias or made aware of those biases or how to combat them. Uh, and so really they aren't being equipped with the tools that they need to actually perform in the way that they should be performing in the community. And so I think that's the problem of uh, police chiefs, of uh, broader city policymakers, mayors, uh, council members, and then moving all the way up to state and federal government. And so, you know, it's all part of a system that needs to change. Samuel Singyangwei's site is mappingpoliceviolence.org. You can find a link to it on our site as well. And Samuel's next project is checkthepolice.org. It focuses on police union contracts. Samuel says these contracts are often the key factor in determining police-community relations. They dictate how police behave, what happens in the aftermath of a violent encounter, and how the people involved are held accountable. Right now, there is no comprehensive database where you can compare these contracts and identify best practices. He's trying to build it. What's the Point's editor is Chadwick Matlin. Our video producer is Ryan Nantel with help from Jordan Shulkin. Power listeners may have noticed that there was no significant digit this week. It will return next episode. 538's podcast and video intern is Asta Chedervedi. This is Asta's last week. She's leaving. If next week's show sucks, you'll know why. Seriously, Asta, thank you. And everyone else, remember that name. Joel Werner helped mix and produce this episode. My name is Jody Avergan. I'm on Twitter at Jody Avergan. You can reach me by email. Find my address at 538.com slash podcasts. At that site, links to the stuff we discussed on today's show and a video of my conversation with Donovan X. Ramsey. Our music is by Rishikesh Hirway, who also hosts the Song Exploder podcast. If you like What's the Point, give us a rating and a review in iTunes. It really does help others discover the show. Thanks for listening. See you soon. <laughs>